Here at Country Roads Magazine, for 40 years with curiosity as our guide, we've been wandering the back roads of Louisiana and Mississippi, discovering and sharing Southern culture's most compelling stories. Our latest project is Detours, a podcast where we'll dive deeper into some favorite stories from our recent issues and crack open the door to our editorial meeting, letting you, dear listener, in on our process of choosing and refining the stories that land in country roads. Think of it as a friendly audio companion to your monthly magazine, a chance to really hear the voices of the artists, chefs, farmers, musicians, designers, and other culture bearers who make our vibrantly unique region like no other. It's a chance to listen closer and discover more. And maybe laugh a little too. I'm James Fox-Smith, publisher. And I'm Jordan Lahey-Fontenot, managing editor. And I'm Alexandra Kennan, arts and entertainment editor. And this is Detours, a new podcast from your friends at Country Roads Magazine. For this episode, James and Jordan sat down with Eva Siskowski, a wildlife technician for the Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries, who has devoted a significant portion of her career to helping sustain and grow Louisiana's endangered whooping crane population. In 1945, only 21 of the rare birds remained in their natural habitats in North America. But beginning in 2011, scientists like Eva with the LDWF have been releasing new cranes in Louisiana to bolster the flock here, following other similar attempts to assist flocks to reproduce in Idaho, Florida, and Wisconsin, where Eva was previously stationed. Last year's breeding season for Louisiana's flock was the most successful yet, with 15 chicks hatching and 8 making it to fledgling, a massive accomplishment in the international efforts to stabilize the population of North America's tallest birds. Of the 175 birds released in Louisiana since 2011, around 81 remain, since the species is particularly susceptible to illness, power lines, bobcats, barbed wire fences, and sadly poachers, which has been a problem particularly in Louisiana. But thanks to Eva and her colleagues' efforts to track the birds and assist them in pairing and reproduction, which sometimes involves the scientists donning a cotton whooping crane costume and pretending to be part of the flock, the efforts to ensure the longevity of North America's whooping cranes are looking more hopeful than ever. They've also garnered a lot of attention on Facebook, like when a crane's release in Vermilion, Paris went viral online, which helps contribute to public education about the birds and the importance of saving them. In our June 2023 Our Natural World issue, writer Chris Staudinger documents it all, from the soap opera-like romances of these birds that usually mate for life, to Eva and her team carrying a puppet of a crane head into the marshes to assist in reproduction efforts. You can find Chris's original story on our website in the show notes, along with more information about the LDWF's efforts to preserve these unique endangered birds at countryroadsmag.com detours. Thank you so much for joining us here on Detours, Eva. We and our listeners are so eager to hear and learn more about your incredible work with whooping cranes. Um, we'd love to start off by having you just describe to us what this bird looks like up close, because most of us have not had the uh, benefit of seeing one. Um, and some people may not even really know what they look like at all. So we'd love to have you tell us a little bit about your interactions with them. Sure. Well, first off, thank you for having me. Um, the whooping cranes are the tallest flying bird in North America, so they can stand up to five feet tall in their 
um, standing with their neck straight up. Um, they're all white except for a red patch on the top of their head and some black facial markings. Um, and they have black legs. And when they open their wings, they do have about 10 feathers on the end of each wing that are black. Um, there are a number of other birds that look similar to whooping cranes, but they are nowhere near the size. I think that's what I didn't really know. I had an image in my head about these birds, but then when I saw the photos that came through with this story, I was like, wow, these are enormous birds. They are huge birds. Um, that I I have I don't think I've ever seen just driving down the street at all, you know. It's not like your cowbird or your or your um egret. I think people get those two confused too sometimes. Um could you tell us about the name? Like, do you know where the name whooping crane comes from? Yeah, whooping cranes are called whooping cranes because of the noise that they make when they call. Um, it's just very loud and resonant. Um, they do have a long coiled trachea, which helps them project their, their sound a little bit further. So it's based on their call. So interesting. And, and actually, Eva, if I can just ask one thing, like how rare are they are these birds today um i know the article that we published that you were a big part of in country roads talked about that but just for listeners that hadn't read that you know how rare are we talking they are the least numerous of the crane species um, throughout the world uh, and they're only native to north america and currently the entire population including birds in captivity is less than a thousand birds um, so they are very rare across the landscape and this effort to uh, to kind of bring them back or protect them has been going on for some time now. Um, it's been kind of an ongoing up-down situation from what I understand, right? Like in facing lots of challenges along the way. Yes. So in the early 1940s, there were only 21 known birds in existence. Um, and since that time, there's been a lot of protections put in place for the whooping cranes. Um, and one of the big things that helped the population grow, especially the captive flock, is they found the breeding grounds um, in the North, Northwest Territories in Canada and were able to collect some eggs, which provided cranes for the captive flock. Um, and those captive birds are what allow us now to be doing these reintroduction projects. So this reintroduction project in Louisiana specifically is one of the newer ones. Uh, could you tell me a little bit about it? I know that you were involved in, was it Wisconsin pre previously? Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. The Louisiana one is the most recent one to start uh, with the release of the first birds in early 2011, not 2000. Yeah, that's the same thing. My bad. <laughs> um and so we've been going for about 13 or 12, 12 years. Yeah. Could you just tell us about the, the project in Louisiana, the reintroduction? Um, and you've been involved in it from the beginning. Am I right? No, I actually was not. I was not involved in the beginning. I came down to Louisiana in 2015. In 2015. Okay. And this one is one of the more successful ones as of right now, correct? Um, yeah, I would say we have um, the best chick survival so far. Um, so between hatching and fledging, we have the highest percentage of chicks that have made it to fledging out of the ones that have hatched. Um, the projects all have had their challenges. Um, ours currently seems to be an egg embryo death issue. We have a high percentage of our eggs that are fertile, but the embryos die 
during various stages of incubation, and we're not really sure why that's happening. Eva, like for those who hadn't read the article, how big of a deal was it when that first whooping crane chick was successfully hatched in Louisiana in 2016? It was extremely exciting because it was the first whooping crane that had hatched in Louisiana for over 60 years. Um, and we know there was a non-migratory population in this area in Louisiana back in the day. Um, in 1939, I think it was, there were a couple of young of the year that were spotted in the White Lake Marsh, actually. So it was it was a pretty big deal and the first step to hopefully a successful reintroduction project. So even back as far as 1939, the fact that those, those um, hatchings were recorded must mean that people were already very aware these birds were on the very endangered brink of extinction. Is that right? Like the whooping, the effort to conserve them, how far back does that date? Ooh, that is a good question. I don't know the timeline exactly, but I do know um, like the, the breeding grounds weren't found. They were found pretty recently in the grand scheme of time. Um, so I, yeah, I don't really know exactly when people started to be like, oh, hang on a minute, we need to like really pay attention to these birds. Sure. What um, are the factors that have made this bird so, you know, so endangered? What are the challenges? You know, there's the challenges they're facing today as an endangered species, but what got them here? Uh, so the population decline, well, firstly, they weren't super numerous to begin with. We don't really know how many whooping cranes were on the landscape when they were in their highest numbers. It's estimated maybe over 10,000-ish. Um, but the main decline is attributed to hunting when there were unregulated hunting um, and habitat loss when prairies were converted into farmland and they lost a lot of their their breeding grounds and stuff. So in which parts of Louisiana would one be most likely to spot a whooping crane today? Well, we've released cranes at the White Lake Wetlands Conservation Area in Vermilion Parish and the Rockefeller Wildlife Refuge on along the Gulf Coast in Cameron Parish. Um, but the cranes really have moved a lot inland. They don't really use the marshy coastal areas. So any place where there's a lot of rice and crawfish farming are areas that are heavily used by our cranes. Those habitats are managed like as a shallow wetland. Um, and especially during breeding season, a lot of our cranes nest in active crawfish fields because the water level is just the level that they prefer. So in Louisiana, you're largely going to, you're talking about Southwest Louisiana, the flatlands, yeah, the, the cultivated lands that, um, yep. that we're all familiar with. The historical cage, yes, the historical Cajun prairie. So like Jeff Davis, Acadia, Vermilion. Cameron Parish, um, all that kind of south central, southwestern area of the state. So my last question on that really is, are they, uh, do, would you say that they're uniquely impacted by climate change, habitat loss, maybe more so than other species? Or is that really, is that a separate issue? I think they're pretty adaptable, actually. Um, obviously, uh, they've learned to use areas that are farmed now. And even with the activity that goes on on a normal crawfish farm, they don't seem to be bothered by it. Um, the Eastern migratory population that I worked on prior to the Louisiana flock, they don't even migrate very far from Wisconsin anymore. They're very cold hardy birds. As long as they have food and water, they're totally fine. Even if there's snow on the ground and things are iced over. Um, so I don't, I'm not sure if 
now because there aren't very many cranes around right. that the um like the habitat conversion or or climate is is affecting them so much um in the present day and i suppose given that they seem to do well in a landscape that is cultivated for crawfish or rice neither of which are particularly scarce at least in our part of the world then that's mm-hmm. a relatively a potentially quite quite welcoming environment yes for sure and for and sure. that and the cranes in in this particular habitat are they migrating or are they staying put all year round the louisiana flock stays put all year round they were never taught a migration route um and they really have no reason to leave because the weather is fine all year round. There's food all the time. There's water all the time. Um, there's no drivers in terms of um, find the need for food that would make them leave the area. What you know? What about this like hot summer that we're coming out of? Were they affected at all by that? Not that we can tell. <laughs> we actually had a very late best this year um, that didn't hatch, and I went out in the middle of July to pick up their egg and they sat, I mean, they look miserable when they're sitting on a nest and they're not in cooler water, but it doesn't really seem to affect them all that much. Interesting. So interesting. Well, let's uh, back up a little bit and talk about you actually, um, your background, your education. Um, Tell us how you got involved with wildlife conservation and with whooping cranes more specifically. So after I graduated from college, I was really just looking for a job. (laughs) And I wanted to do something with animals. I grew up on a small farm and I've always liked animals. Um, And I came across an internship with the Fish and Wildlife Service in Wisconsin um, with the Whooping Cream Project there. And that's really how I got involved. Um, After that internship was over, I internship with the International Crane Foundation. And then I became their tracking field manager. And then when a job opened up in Louisiana, that's when I moved down here. So um, it really just started as a need for a job sort of in my more professional uh, bubble, I guess. And I've just never left. Yeah. (laughs) We and the cranes are glad you stuck around. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I would love to hear you talk about uh, what, you know, you what you find most interesting about them, what kind of keeps you motivated to keep doing this work and kind of fighting Um, for them? They're very interesting birds. And like most animals, they all kind of have their own personalities. Um, When I started working on whooping cranes, uh, the job that I was doing was actually raising chicks um, to be released. So we are around, you know, little baby whooping cranes basically and got to see them all the way up until they were old enough to be released. Um, But I don't know, they're a very uh, charismatic bird. (laughs) I don't don't know. I don't really know how to explain it, but. Yeah, could you, sorry, I was gonna say, could you just tell us about some of your like favorite interactions with them and um, maybe favorite memories with Yeah, I mean like, okay, you hang out with five foot tall birds that don't (laughs) appear to be particularly frightened of humans. That's, you know, like I keep chickens, but they're they're not very impressive by comparison. And I mean, not many of us have stood eye to eye with a bird and particularly endangered one and a bird that can respond to say, a, um, a a researcher who can might be dressed in a in a crane costume to encourage, you know, a, a breeding interaction. That, those uh, are some extraordinary experiences. Can you just talk about what it's like to have that face to face 
face-to-face -face interaction with a creature. And we we must know about the costumes. We, we must yes. know. Um, <laughs> in my previous work at the in the other um, reintroduction that I worked in, I was in the costume a lot more since we were raising chicks as ba from babies. Um, now we're in the costume mostly uh, when we get our new batch of chicks for release, and when we're doing captures um to replace transmitters um and i always like to say i like them when they're mean <laughs> and we have a lot of mean birds <laughs> well, even when we do sometimes interact with them while we're not trying to interact with them as people if we do nest management or if we go out to collect eggs we'll go just as humans we don't wear the costume for that um and part of the reasoning for that is they, most of them have been reared by the costume, so they're sort of familiar and they might be more aggressive towards the costume if they think that maybe uh, we're another crane. Although I, I don't think they think we're actual cranes, but who knows. Um, so we, we sometimes yeah. just go as people to hopefully um, be attacked a little bit less. <laughs> Respected a little, yeah. Maybe, although yes. sometimes they yes. don't care. <laughs> So one one species of charismatic megafauna to another, basically. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. And it's it's so very interesting that they can be, I mean, quote unquote, like fooled. I, I mean, to trust, I guess this this specific image that's coming to them, this this costume, even if they don't think it's a crane necessarily. It's uh, fascinating to think about the way their minds are processed. Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. So the costume is basically just a big white loose flowing dress i guess kind of in a way and then we have yeah. um helmets we b both me and my coworker, we have hard hat helmets so it's a hard hat with a, a cloth over it and a little um face shield so we can yeah, see yeah. and then we do have these very realistic puppet heads um if we're and, if and we that's... don't need both our hands to do something we'll have a puppet head on one of them um and that's pretty much it that's super that's super so cool. interesting so um, Eva, one of the biggest challenges, as we understood from the article, to the long-term viability of the whooping crane population here or anywhere is their struggles to reproduce. Can you tell us why it is that what you what is known about why the whooping crane in particular has such a hard time reproducing? Um, well, here in Louisiana, like I mentioned before, we have the egg that egg embryos die during various stages of incubation, and we really don't have any idea why. Um, we started a new research project this year with a partner up in Alaska, um, the USGS Alaska Science Center, and they're going to look a little bit more closely at the samples that we collect to see if they can identify anything that sticks out among all the various egg and bird samples that we collect to see if we can figure out what's going on. Um, it seems... And whooping cranes seem a little bit more particular in terms of their eggs and and their hatchability in general compared to like if you say, I have a bunch of chicken eggs and I just threw them in the incubator and then I ignored them for 21 days and most of them hatched. Whooping crane eggs don't do that. <laughs> They're a little bit more particular about that. That And we I don't think we know exactly why. And so are the other populations in other places, Wisconsin, Northwest Territories, are they seeing the same kind of egg death, embryo death, or is that a specific Louisiana? It, that is specific to Louisiana. Um, I'm not sure they have a great idea about 
the number of eggs and how many eggs hatch and, and what the status or the end result of eggs into a buffalo necessarily are. Um, that population has been increasing, so that isn't a major concern. Um, in Wisconsin, they don't have the egg embryo death issue. They do have issues during reproduction with bird feeding, bird feeding black flies that come out while the cranes are incubating their eggs. And um, when the chicks hatch, they, there's, they seem to have a low chick survival rate, like from hatching to fledging. Um, but all of our birds come from the same place. Um, all whooping cranes are at least somewhat related since they all came from a very small number of birds. Um, so the Wisconsin Reintroduction Project and our Reintroduction Project, all the birds have generally the same genetics. So we can rule that out as an issue about why our eggs are dying and the Wisconsin eggs don't seem to have that problem. How long is a crane's life cycle and what age do they begin to reproduce? Well, we generally say that they can live in the wild like 20 to 25 years. Um, of course, there's some flexibility in that, obviously. We currently have a crane who was originally released in Florida as part of that um, discontinued reintroduction. And she hatched in 1998. Mm. So she's... 25 years old. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's wild. Yeah. Is that, that's quite... I yeah. mean, I know there are some, like parrots, there are some bird species that really are very long-lived, aren't they? But I mean, cranes must be up there. Yeah. Cranes can get pretty old in captivity. I don't... I think the oldest whooping crane was maybe around 40. So... They're a very long-lived species, um, and they don't start breeding until they're generally three years old, although we have had a number of two-year-olds um, that have successfully laid eggs or fertilized eggs, depending male or female. So, um, Besides uh, okay. humans, poachers, uh, what other major predators do cranes have? Um, well, another human-related uh, issue that we see are power line collisions we've had about 15 hit power lines, um, which usually means that they're going to be dead. We've collected some that have been injured from power line collisions and have had to be euthanized just because their injuries are so severe. Um, but natural predators, bobcats and coyotes, I would say are probably the two biggest ones. Um, and Yeah, because they nest on the ground, right? So, I mean, there's no defending the nest from anything that walks up interested in an egg or a chick well they do nest on the ground but they nest in marshes so they have that protection partly just from the water and a bobcat or a coyote isn't either going to want to walk through the water to get out there or the cranes are going to hear them coming gotcha um it's whooping cranes do not land in trees so they they can't land in trees so they spend all of their life on the ground which obviously puts them more at risk for those ground predators as well how have scientists intervened then to assist these birds in raising their offspring? Um, well, here in Louisiana, I wouldn't say that we assist them in raising their offspring, but to combat the egg embryo issue, we do sometimes do egg swaps on specific pairs that we know they have a history of their eggs dying, or even if, if a pair sits past full term and their eggs never hatched and we have an egg to give them, we might give them an egg. So we're sort of, in a way, artificially um, creating more chicks on the landscape by doing that. We don't do very many egg swaps a year because it's very dependent on 
are there eggs in captivity that will match up or, you know, will hatch in time for these birds to get them type of thing. Um, so that that's really the main thing that we do down here in terms of the reproduction uh, and nesting season uh, manipulation. Sure. You guys also um, talk, there's like a little bit of matchmaking. I think this is maybe what, like a, a more occasional instance that we just, that you described in the story. Um, but I remember a quote from you where you said, it's kind of like a soap opera. There's so much pressure on these birds, not only to nest, but before they nest, they must mate and find their partner. And don't they mate for life? Is that right? Generally, we say they mate for life. Um, but the soap opera part is if, if a pair loses a mate or if a, a bird loses their mate, they will try to repair with another bird. And that might mean stealing a mate from oh, a different right. pair. And then that bird then is single and they're going to try to find a new mate. So it could be just a chain reaction of pairs splitting simply because one crane died um, okay. and their mate was successful in stealing somebody else it's, it's just like living in a small town really right well it's just not enough not enough uh, choice around then right then, yeah uh, so we so we say generally they mate for life but um as long as as nothing happens yeah. sure sure no there was it's, the uh the kind of major character in the in chris's piece was like elf correct me if i'm not if i'm not right here but it's l fourteen seventeen. is that right the bird who yeah. ventured off to Beaumont and and had a bait and lost her mate, and so you guys were like, she can't be there by herself, and went and got her. Um, that story captured the attention of so many people on Facebook. Is that right? Yeah, yeah tell us about I that. just videoed. I had a short little video clip of us releasing her, and I don't know how it got so popular, <laughs> but it kind of exploded. Yeah, people really love um, that. Eva, could you, uh, would you tell just for, again, for people that haven't read the story, would you just kind of recount in some detail what happened, what that, what that story was? Yeah. So a uh, female L1417 had set up a breeding territory in Eastern Texas um, and she and her mate nested for a couple of years, um, but he unfortunately got killed while he was molting. Um, and we thought maybe she would come back to Louisiana on her own since she was released here and they had made several trips here and she knew how to get here. Um, but when she didn't seem to be interested in coming back, we decided to intervene since there were no other whooping cranes where she was. We had and continue to have a shortage of available females for the number of males that we have. Um, so last March, we uh, went over to Texas and caught her. Um, I was in my costume and she was like dancing around me for a while, like, oh, another crane. And then I think she figured out I wasn't really a crane. Yeah. And then she started threatening me. That's a pretty <laughs> which funny looking crane. Yeah. That's <laughs> it, it made it easy to catch her. So we, we caught her, brought her back to the White Lake Wetlands Conservation Area, released her. And when within about three weeks, she had paired with a male and they nested shortly after that. Um, well. So yeah, it worked well. Have they managed to um, to produce an egg and raise a chick yet? Uh, they did have two eggs this year. Um, that was one of our young males. He's only two years old and produced two fertile eggs. Um, but we ended up pulling those eggs before they were full term, and we swapped in an egg um, into their nest. The place that they were nesting, the farmer was 
it was a fallow field at the time, but he said he was going to be draining it and the water was already very shallow. And him being two years old, we were we were kind of like, well, he's two. We don't know if these are going to be fertile eggs. Um, so we did end up pulling their eggs and giving them a close to hatching egg. Uh, we don't know what happened with that egg. The next day they were off. There was no chick. There was really no egg remains at the nest. So we have no idea what, what happened to that, unfortunately. The two eggs that we pulled, we brought to the Audubon Species Survival Center for continued incubation because they were still alive. Um, one of them ended up hatching. Um, and I believe she's still alive. She's going to be a holdback, a genetic holdback. So her genetics are... She's not as interbred as most of the other cranes. So they want to keep her in captivity to like keep that genetic line going. The other egg, the chick ended up dying like while it was hatching and we're not really sure why. But yeah. um, So there is, she does have one, one chick out there in captivity. And next year, hopefully they'll nest in a, in a better field. First off, that's not going to yeah. be great. It is yeah, it's fascinating and so fragile, isn't it? That's such a tenuous operation that that you guys are trying to perpetuate. It's um, it, it's 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 sort of a little awe-inspiring to hear the work that goes on and that has to be invested in order to to give them any chance of succeeding here. Yeah, yeah. yeah the the creativity too of. Of, and the research that's gone behind all of it to figure out what can be done, what what little, mm-hmm. every little thing that can be done to to keep, to hatch a single egg. I remember, I don't remember if this was something Chris wrote or if you said, Eva, but it's every single chick that hatches is, is monumental to this effort, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, obviously our goal is to create a self-sustaining population and the only way to do that is to get chicks hatching in the wild. <laughs> um, so everyone is important. Um, Eva, the, the article that you participated in was published in June. Here we are in September. When we last checked in, you guys had counted, I think, 28 nesting attempts in the Louisiana flock and five chicks remaining alive. So since that, how has the rest of the breeding season, the 2023 breeding season gone? So um, this year, and I wrote it down so I'd remember, uh, we had 31 total nests by 19 pairs, um, 15 chicks hatched. Three of those were from swaps that we did, and four of them are still alive. We unfortunately just lost one uh, last month. I flew on August 9th. And it was just over 70 days old, so it might have fledged. It was sort of like right on the border where maybe it can fly, maybe it can't fly. Um, and the family was all together. And just like four or five days later, the female was out of the marsh by herself. And the male and the chick are both Renan. gone. They're just, they're just gone. There's no remains, nothing. Uh, their territory, we can only really check from the air. The male has... No had a transmitter but it was non-functional so we can't use that to track track down what happened to him so i just flew earlier this week actually and i looked i flew over the marsh and looked to see if i could find anything but i just i couldn't find any any remains or anything so yeah they just disappeared um that that sounds kind of heartbreaking i'm sad to hear that it uh, again the the success rate is relatively small then yeah yeah so we had four four fledged this year 
Um, but we did have a very interesting thing happen that's never been documented before in Whooping Cranes. Okay. Uh, we had a pair. We have a pair who um, lives in a Boyles Parish, and they hatched and reared a chick this year um, to fledging, and it's it's still alive. Yeah. But they kicked it out really, really early so that they could nest again. Oh, oh. <laughs> interesting. So they had they had a successful chick reared, and then they nested after that successful chick in the same breeding season. They must be aware of the urgency here. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I don't know, but <laughs> that was the nest that I went to in in the middle of July wow. to get their egg because it didn't hatch. But so what's the what's the, yeah, the poor was... little guy who's out on his own uh, doing? Is he just sort of wandering around, feeling lonely? Or um, well, for a while after his his or her parents were on the nest, it was still hanging around their territory. But there is actually another pair that. Um, kind of goes to that area in the winter, the fall and the winter and the breeding territories in Allen Parish um, that were over in that area at the time. And that chick ended up finding them and they've been hanging out sort of like as a foster family. Oh oh my gosh. So I feel like you can never totally expect what they're going to do. That's so interesting um, to just watch Mm -hmm. like a fly on the wall, but no walls. Um, walls. (laughs) One thing we were wondering, you know, a lot of these birds must interact you even mentioned earlier private land like what are the landowners uh, responsibilities there if a, if whooping crane should happen to wander onto their fields or their property uh, they don't have to change any of the activity that they're doing they can continue farming as usual um the whooping cranes in louisiana are obviously protected under the endangered species act but they are classified as experimental non-essential which allows the landowners to continue to do whatever they need to do um, on their own property Um, if we have a breeding pair on someone's land we obviously will contact them and if they nest be like if you need to if you need to drain your field that's fine but if you could just let us know so we can come collect the eggs so if they're still alive, we can incubate them and, you know, hatch out the chicks. Um, so really, we just ask for communication um, from the landowners if they plan on doing anything drastic with it, a field that, say, crates are nesting in. Sure, sure. Yeah, it uh, it's, it's um, we, we were curious as to sort of what kind of response you, you the, the department gets from landowners. Um, do you usually find that landowners are, are um, cooperative in this arrangement? They recognize the sort of momentous nature of getting an opportunity to be part of this. Uh, I suppose you get a range of reactions. Yeah, um, mostly positive. Um, a lot of landowners are, and farmers are fine with us accessing the property to do whatever we need to do. And we like greatly appreciate their cooperation. Um a couple people, I think, uh, still believe that we're going to tell them what they can or cannot do. So their initial reaction might be, eh, I don't want these birds here, um, which we always explain to people, no, we're not going to say you can't plow your field or you can't drain your water. Um, you can do whatever you want. We just ask if we have sensitive birds on a nest or if someone's molting, um, just let us know in advance so we can be aware or we can come collect the eggs and stuff. But yeah, we get a range, um, but definitely more towards the positive. Um, You mentioned, I was just curious about this. You mentioned uh, that the term that they're classed as 
under-endangered species, experimental, non-essential. Um, uh, I'd, I'd never come across that before. Can you explain what that means within the context of the endangered species and what constitutes a, a non-essential versus an essential species? Yeah, so that designation, um, like I mentioned, allows landowners to do what they need to do on their property. Like the government can't come in and say, you can no longer do these activities because you have an endangered species here um, and you have to wait till they leave. Uh, and also it means if, if like the Louisiana population died out, it wouldn't overall affect the survival of the species. Um, because there is the wild population um, that is continually growing. So there still would be whooping cranes on the landscape. Um, so that's the non-essential and experimental um, kind of designation, the things that that, that means. Got it. That makes sense. Interesting. Um, well, Eva, Chris ended this piece um, with a conversation he had with Richard Dunn, who works at the Ottoman Species Survival Center that you mentioned earlier, where they are incubating these eggs. Um, and keeping a lot of the birds in captivity. And so he asked uh, he asked him whether he thought these initiatives were moving towards success or if it was just going to continue being this ever uphill battle. And I was curious what your position on this was um, as of right now. Like, do you, do you have a lot of hope or uh, is this something you'll just keep doing and fighting for maybe forever and maybe that's worth it too? I'm just curious what you think. Um, well, in terms of whooping cranes coming back, I think there's a lot of hope just because the wild naturally occurring flock has continued to grow um, and or remain stable in their population numbers for a number of years now. So that is a positive That's sign. Right. Um, for our population in particular, I think there we also have a lot of positivity. Um, Obviously, we would need more chicks to be surviving, to be self-sustaining. That also goes hand in hand with, well, what's the mortality by year? Obviously, it changes. Um, but the egg embryo death issue is is it's a big one. Probably our biggest hurdle right now. Um, and hopefully, we can sort of figure out what's going on with that. So I think our population is well. We'll see. We'll see. Sure. Still, sure. we don't really. We don't really have enough information. I think to say whether or not. We're for sure going to be successful or whether or not it's it's not going to work but i don't think if i don't think we would do it forever in louisiana if it's clear that it's not working um i think it would be a, a, another reintroduction that be, might be well we tried and this is what we learned um but this this area is not going to work sure um so We'll One see. thing, again, that Chris mentioned in his article was that uh, the prevalence of birds lost to poaching had been relatively high in Louisiana. Mm -hmm. Of course, a place where um, where hunting is a huge part of the culture, um, okay. but that there seemed to have been some some reduction in that as time has gone by, as maybe public social awareness has grown of the crane's presence and the extreme um, uh, endangered nature of the species. And I uh, just wondered if you could talk about that and the observation of that. And also just for listeners to know, what are the penalties? You, uh, you take a pot shot at a, uh, at a, uh, a whooping crane, you know, what are you in for? That really depends on where they get 
prosecuted. No. But in Texas, we did have some birds get shot um, a while back now. Uh, and the judge, <clears throat> um, I think it was like $13,000 a bird. So wow. yeah. this kid killed two birds. Ooh. So he's in for 28000 And then probation and, and all that kind of stuff. The most recent um, case that was prosecuted in Louisiana was two birds that got shot in Acadia Parish. And I cannot remember exactly what the penalties was were the penalties were, but they were the stiffest ones in Louisiana. And I think that really deters people. Um, we had a lot of support from the International Crane Foundation asking for high penalties to, you know, discourage people from shooting these birds. Um, and I think that support really, uh, really helped in that case and in the Texas case. Um, so. so moral of story, if you are a hunter and you see a big white bird flying over a rice field, don't shoot at it. Uh -uh. Yes, but I will say we have not had any hunters accident accidentally shoot cranes. Uh, okay. I think all of our all of our poaching cases have been outside of hunting seasons um, or not people who are actively like in the field hunting. It's just simply it's poaching. It's poaching. Wow. They're not hunters who are misidentifying wow. birds. Good to know. Okay. That's very interesting, actually. Yeah. Um, so on that note and on that on the importance of people just being aware of of the rarity of these birds and how uh, special it is to even have them here right now and the work that's being done around them, where can people go? Where can our listeners go to learn more about these reintroduction projects um, and maybe get involved in some way? Uh, well, we have a whooping crane page on our website, the Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries. We have information on our project um, and also downloads, uh, PDF downloads that have like the history of whooping cranes in Louisiana and how to identify a whooping crane, um, other species that look like whooping cranes and are often misidentified as whooping cranes. Um, the International Crane Foundation also has a lot of great information um, on the cranes and the, the Eastern Migratory Reintroduction Project that's going on up there. Um, and the Fish and Wildlife Service has information on whooping cranes as well online since technically, um, as they are an endangered species, they are, I can't think of a better word, they're owned by the Fish and Wildlife Service. Obviously, that's not quite the right word. Right, but, sure, sure. Um, so they, as a species, are uh, the, the the charge of the fishing and wildlife Yes. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Yes, yes. Well, great. We'll have all of those resources linked in our show notes, along with uh, Chris's story from our June 2023 issue. Uh, thank you so much, Eva, again, for joining us. Uh, this was really great. Yes, thank you. And all the very best for the reintroduction project. We're really excited to see it develop over the years. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, and if you're still with us at this point, we assume that you do. Please subscribe to Detours. Give us a rating and maybe even send it to a friend. And if you're not already reading Country Roads magazine, you probably should be. To read online, find a copy, or subscribe to have the monthly issues delivered to your door, visit countryroadsmag.com. Detours is written, reported, and produced by us, the editorial team at Country Roads magazine. James Fox Smith, Jordan Lahe-Fontenot, 
and Alexander Kennan. Our theme music was written and recorded by Bill Daniel and Sam Shaheen of Naughty Professor and produced by Bill Daniel at Wildchild Studios in New Orleans. The audio editing for this season was done by me, Jordan Lahey-Fontenot, and Alexandra Kinnan. The Detour's logo and other graphics were designed by Country Roads Magazine's creative director, Courtney Zimmerman. So until our next Detour, don't be a stranger. You can always reach us at detours at countryroadsmag.com. And thanks for listening.